You're listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life with Dan Simon. And I said, you know, I'd be very leery of any service that charged that kind of money, but you just gave me a brainstorm for my next career. I had always had the kind of karma, even as a child growing up in Brooklyn, where people would confide in me very easily. And, you know, I can use this to help people in life and really advocate for people. And so that's what really started me on the legal track. But then I thought, well, you know, I knew so many people here in Washington at that time who were single and unable to really connect with people who they considered in their league. Uh, be open, be flexible, be willing to take chances, which you know brings me back to my childhood legacy we talked about, is really take a risk. Welcome to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life, a podcast about people's personal journeys of discovery and recreation. I'm Dan Simon. We dig deep to understand the essence of each guest. How did they get to this point in their life? We all have stories to tell about our own lives that help the rest of us realize who we are and what we could become. As a life coach, I've always been intrigued by the stories people tell. What were the trials, tragedies, and triumphs they encountered while navigating through life? There are no mistakes in life, only experiences and lots of contrast. If we can have compassion for others, can't we have the same for ourselves? That's always been my personal mission, to remind people the truth of who they are, to remind them that they've done their very best. In each episode, that's what you'll find, a beautiful soul doing their best to create a life that's fulfilling and rewarding. You are really going to enjoy today's episode. We rewind the life of Leora Hoffman. Starting in Israel as the child of Holocaust survivors, Leora learned very early on the true meaning of resilience, how to be brave and bold and courageous, and how to be an advocate for other people. After she became a lawyer, she worked in the Philly DA's office focusing on domestic violence cases. But she found her true calling 30 years ago when she left law to become a matchmaker. And yeah, I know that is quite a jump in career shifts from law to being a matchmaker. But And in the show, you'll find out how all that occurred. But as a true romantic, she dedicated herself to helping people find love because finding the right person is a life-altering event. And Lior calls herself a heart hunter. And the contrast really to today's online dating world, the Bumble and the Tinders, could not be more stark. Leora's approach couldn't be more different in terms of getting to know people on a personal basis, using her intuition and her analytical abilities to bring two people together who are looking to find love. It is a fascinating story and one that is very timely. So let's get right to the show. So welcome, Leora. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So to start off with, I like to ask people if they can describe, summarize their life in six sentences. Okay, six sentences. Uh, I'll try and pare that down. Born in Israel, raised in New York, educated in, um, at Penn undergrad, uh, Hofstra Law School, moved to D.C. in the early 80s, raised two children, currently married, running a matchmaking business. That's about six sentences, I think. <laughs> I think so. I wasn't counting. 
<laughs> when did you uh, emigrate from Israel to the United States? How old were you? I was just a baby. I was 11 months old. Okay. And uh, my father had learned that one of his five brothers had survived the Holocaust and was living in New York. And they reconnected. And my uncle inspired my family to come to the U.S. And that's how it happened. Interesting. Uh, and you still have family in Israel as well? I do. I have various cousins, and I now have a niece who's married with four children living in Jerusalem as well. Okay, great. So why don't you tell us a little bit in terms of um, your upbringing in, in New York? What kind, of, uh, what kind of a life did you have growing up? So it was a very interesting life, very colorful life. I grew up in an apartment building, uh, well, actually two apartment buildings. Uh, the first was walking distance from Prospect Park in Flatbush. And, and I had a large variety of friends. It was very multicultural. It was very social. And because we all lived in you know, close proximity to one another, it was very intimate. We knew and were in and out of each other's apartments all the time. And so it was very socially really an enriching experience in many ways. And uh, my sister and I were educated in private Jewish schools. I attended a Jewish day school and then a, what's called a yeshiva high school. Right. So that my education was really um, geared towards the culture in which I was raised, which is conservative Judaism. My parents had each survived the Holocaust separately. My mother was German, my father Polish, and they actually met in then Palestine and married there and lived there for about 20 years. So it was very important to them that my sister and I, who was five years older than me, maintain the cultural connection and the language skills as well. Uh, let me ask this, Leora. How would how did that impact your life that your that your parents were both Holocaust survivors? Oh, it's a complicated question in many ways, both really overtly in some ways and then subtly in other ways. Overtly, because my family was spread around the world, I have have very close family in London. Those on my mother's side who survived the war ended up in England. Um, on my father's side, his cousins were scattered through the U.S., uh, Central, and South America. And so we had family all over. And really quite a um, notable aspect of my childhood was that our home was almost like the U.N. absorption center. <laughs> so that every time anyone was traveling to New York from anywhere who was distantly related, they would end up on our doorstep and my parents would host them. And so it gave me a really, as a child, and more international perspective about life. And that was, you know, very healthy for me, I think. On a more subtle levels, uh, for good and bad, it affected me. For good in the sense that my parents were very resilient, had learned to really start their lives over again once we came to the U.S. They each started businesses from the ground up. 
and they each, you know, my father had to be educated in English. She didn't speak a word of English when we came here. And my mother, who was fluent in English, quickly realized that she would have to really be a working mom at a time when very few moms were working moms in order to give us the private education, which they felt was so important to provide to us. So I saw a model that was unusual in the 50s and 60s, which is you know, a working mom who was a businesswoman who went to an office every day. And um, you know, that for my sister and I, I think really molded us tremendously because she just taught by example. Um, you know, she wasn't an activist in any way. She wasn't even what they would call a feminist back then. You know, that, that term was not even used, but she just led by example. And I think the legacy of being survivors really gave them a much deeper appreciation for the importance of family, for the importance of keeping the culture going. Um, in many ways, you know, provided a level of neurosis and humor that is well documented. Yeah, it goes um, hand in hand, doesn't it? It does. It does. They happen to be very funny people, both of them, you know, respectively. And, you know, I always marveled at the fact that they could be, you know, so joyful after having lost most of their family and, you know, having to rebuild a life. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that, you know, that you people going through this unbelievably traumatic experience and how some can come, come out and live a healthy life and, and then some can never get past it. And, you know, what's the, what's the difference? Right. Uh, I was just fortunate that, you know, I was born into a family with that kind of resilience. So what would be the the biggest lesson you'd say you took from both your mother and your father in terms of when you when you went into adulthood? What was your understanding both of yourself and and of life that uh, you took into being an adult? Well, basically, you know, their advice to me and the way they modeled their lives was really to, you know, be bold, be courageous in life, take risks, not be afraid to take risks, to work hard, to establish goals, to stick by those goals, to, to really persevere in the, in the face of, you know, many obstacles, um, not to give up. You know, those are the lessons that, you know, resonated with me as a, as a young child. And, you know, I decided at a fairly young age, I can't even remember, maybe preteen, that I wanted to be a lawyer. And maybe um, part of it was watching Perry Mason on TV at that time, I think. But I saw myself as an advocate. And um, they gave me no reason to be discouraged on any level. The fact that I was a girl didn't phase them. You know, they felt that whatever I set my mind out to do, I could accomplish. And that was also, you know, another lesson they taught me is that you, you can accomplish whatever you set out to do with hard work and perseverance and patience. And probably that wasn't the most prevalent lesson in culture and society back then, was it? Not at all. No. Not at all. But, you know, again, as I said, I, I think I was unique in the sense that 
I also attended schools that were mostly attended by wealthy Jewish families in Brooklyn, which is where I grew up. And, you know, I was a scholarship student. So I was exposed to, you know, a lot of different cultural things where, you know, part of, I fit in in part, partly and, and not in other ways. So it was really trying to find my way among, um, you know, different, um, different attitudes. And I always felt that, you know, honesty and authenticity were, were the only way to go. I mean, I never tried to put on airs or be anyone I wasn't. And I think that was a good lesson also. So tell me about your experience at, uh, at college and at law school. You went to Penn undergrad, then you went to Hofstra, is that correct? Right. Yeah, so uh, Penn was a fantastic experience for me. Although I had grown up in New York and was used to an urban setting, you know, the experience of living away from home at an urban setting where I really felt that I was surrounded by peers and it was a very exciting time and a very you know, scary time at first. I really, um, I took to dorm living at first, really like a duck to water, I loved it. I made friends right away. I was socially really happy. Um, I began my first love relationship in my freshman year at Penn and that was very important and ended up being a two year relationship. So, you know, discovering romance and love at a young age was part of my college experience. Academically, I was challenged in a way I hadn't been before, and it really forced me to up my game because, you know, I was always a good student. I was an A student, which is what got me into Penn. But then I realized, like, wait a second, I'm in the big leagues here, and, you know, everyone here is an A student, or they wouldn't right. be here. So I really had to work differently in order to really succeed. And uh, my freshman year, I just took basic intro courses while I was deciding what my major would be. But I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. And so I was on a pre-law track from the very beginning. And um, I had a wonderful experience at Penn. First, I lived on campus for two years. Then I lived off campus for the latter two years. And um, I studied political science as a major and I minor minored in psychology. And I was lucky to become affiliated with a group of criminal defense attorneys through some of the volunteer work that I had done. And they inspired me further to go to law school. I interned in a few law practices among people who I was introduced to. And then I interned in the DA's office in Philadelphia for two years in what, what was newly established as a domestic violence unit in City Hall in Philadelphia. And so that was very, very fulfilling and inspiring for me. So I'm dying to hear, I think we'll get to that, what, what got you off of the legal track. So you, you went to law school and you were doing all these things and then you began practicing law after you got out of law school? For time, yes. right? Yes, I practiced law in a small firm. Uh, that firm was a criminal defense specialist in Old Town Alexandria. And I practiced in that firm until I had my daughter. 
1985, and then I joined the federal government so that my hours could be more reasonable once I became a mom. So I started my practice right out of law school, and I practiced for about five years on and off in between having two children. And so it wasn't until I had had my second child that I decided that I wanted to take a different career path. So what prompted that? Was it mostly the demands on your family time of, of, uh, of being Yes, it was. It was. I felt like, unfortunately, in law, it seemed that the options were either to do something very fulfilling, which required a lot of time beyond a nine-to-five situation, or having regular hours and doing something that was more routine or less stimulating for me. And in my case, I had been working for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission three days a week, a job that I got through the Women's Bar Association. And I was lucky to have gotten it because there were so few part-time jobs in the city. And so I grabbed it, but I was never really completely happy in the position. And so when I was home on maternity leave with my second child, I was doing a lot of soul searching about, you know, what my next gig would be and professionally. And at the same time, my sister called me from New York, which where she remained, I moved to DC in the early eighties. My sister stayed in New York. And, and she, were you the oldest or the youngest, Laura? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest, okay. So I was married to my now former husband at the time with young children. And my older sister had been married much earlier than me, but was divorced. And she was looking to meet someone new and called me to say that she had consulted a matchmaker in New York. And what did I think about it? And I said, whoa, that's very interesting. Tell me more. And she told me about a service that was very exclusive, very expensive on Madison Avenue, which supposedly provided referrals to very successful men. And I asked her what they charged. And when she told me that their fees started at $25,000 and on up, and this was in the 80s, I thought, whoa, that's a fortune. Yeah. And I said, you know, I'd be very leery of any service that charged that kind of money, but you just gave me a brainstorm for my next career. <laughs> And being a therapist, she said to me, what kind of crisis are you having with your profession? And my response was, well, never mind that. I don't know anyone who's doing that kind of work here in Washington. And I think I'd be great at it. I'm going to look into it. And the reason I, I responded that way was because I had always had the kind of karma, even as a child growing up in Brooklyn, where people would confide in me very easily. Strangers on the street would sit down next to me, you know, on a bus or on a subway and start telling me their problems. And this happened over and over again to me. And I thought, well, I must have the kind of face that people can trust, which is a good thing. And, you know, I can use this to help people in life and really advocate for people. And so that's what really started me on the legal track. But then I thought, well, you know, I knew so many people here in Washington at that time who were single and unable to really connect with people who they considered in their league. And my instincts tell me that this community could really benefit from a good matchmaker. And at that time, this was before the internet, 
all you had were large dating services or the rabbi's or pastor's wife who is volunteering to match people from home, but nothing in between and nothing that really catered to professional singles. Yeah, later on, I'd like to... I'd like to hear, not right now, but I'd like to hear the comparison between what you do and the, uh, it seems like the idea of, that your sister gave you kind of hit on a lot of different cylinders. What would you say most excited you about, about doing this, this type of work? Um, I'm a true romantic, Dan. <laughs> and okay. The idea of getting people together and love relationships really, really excited me because what could make a person happier than helping to facilitate people to find love? Yeah. And there was such a need for it. And I could absolutely feel that a service that was structured properly could really succeed, not only as a business, but also in helping people really alter their lives, you know, immeasurably, because finding that right person is really a life-altering event in life. And, and many people are not fortunate enough to experience that. But when one does, it is truly life-altering. And I wanted to really have an impact. And I felt like, well, you know, lawyers are a dime a dozen here in Washington, but a good matchmaker is not, you know, something that has come along every day. And I just felt like I was in a really good position to step into that. Uh, it's fascinating, and I have to think that that uh, you know if your sister had not introduced you to the idea, you know maybe I don't know maybe you'd still be a lawyer. It's always interesting how some quirky event or some chance meeting or some new idea pops in, and you know so many people get ideas or see things that are interesting, they don't follow them. I, I certainly think it would have been easy for you. Not to, not to follow that idea and stay in the, the career you're in, which is obviously uh, you were successful what you're doing and had lots of different opportunities. So uh, that's quite a big choice to say, oh, I'm going to entertain something that's 180 degrees different from what you were doing and follow your, you know, the best I would describe it is that you decided to follow your intuition uh, and, and that's the direction you went, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I didn't just go off half-cocked and do it. I went to a business consultant, an MBA from Wharton, who helped start up businesses, and he helped me develop a plan. And then I went back to my then-government job after my maternity leave was up, and I implemented that plan over the course of almost a year. At the end of that year, I had developed a pool of interested people who wanted to help network for me and pass the word around. And by then, I was so excited by the idea because of the response that I got from the community that I decided, okay, I'm ready. And with the blessing of my now former husband, I began the business. And that's a whole other story. Yeah. But you had the support. Yes, I had the support. And um, I, the timing couldn't have been better because it took me a year to develop a pool of people who would then be eligible to meet paying clients once I hung out my shingle and started to charge fees. And during that time, I was still at my government job. So I was able to really get it up and running and have really something ready to roll by the time I, I left my former job at that time. 
Well, it seems like a smart thing to do to do the spade work to to plant the seeds. How did you how did you develop the uh, your uh, list your your clientele during that first year? It was mostly word of mouth. I knew inherently that the business would really rise or fall on the success of my networking efforts because I didn't set out to become a large dating service. I didn't want to have thousands of people. I wanted to have a small intimate practice where I got to know everyone, where I worked with them through a process ultimately designed to yield one successful match as a result of it. But it involved really getting to know my clients very well over the process and hearing the feedback from each meeting, making an assessment as to whether the match was viable or not, coaching people, how to move forward effectively. So it became a lot more than just making a referral. It became a practice where I was really representing somebody's personal life and somebody's interests. And when I did recruitment, it was as if I were functioning as a search firm but for their personal lives rather than their professions. I like to call myself a heart hunter rather than a head hunter. There you and go. You get the picture. And you know, what's, what I find so admirable is that the, when somebody starts a successful business, the next thing they do is, let's see, how can we scale it to make more money? How can we automate and computerize things and give a bunch of forms to fill out and, and uh, so the thing can get bigger and you know it's evident looking just at your website and we'll post all that uh, in the show notes uh, Lior. but it's evident that what's important to you is the personal connection with all of your clients and that that's kind of the centerpiece of everything you do is that connection that you make with people absolutely and there is absolutely no substitute for that and any efforts at really trying to recreate that in my opinion are not as effective no, even if they might be more lucrative, they right. would lose the personal element. Uh, so tell me more about, because it's, it's just fascinating to me, how do you go about um, the process of developing a relationship with a client and, then, and finding a match? How does that, what's the nuts and bolts of how that works? Well, it begins with an initial phone call or email. Somebody might seek out my services and I very quickly want to have a phone conversation with the person as opposed to an email exchange because I learn a lot more speaking to a person than just seeing a form that they might fill out. So it starts with an inquiry, then a conversation. I get a feel for the person. And if I feel like after speaking with them, there's somebody who could benefit from my program, I will invite them to meet with me for a consultation. That consultation usually lasts about 90 minutes to two hours where I sit down with the person face to face and I get a background, a family background, a relationship history, a sense of the person. And I provide them with a written packet of materials which explains all the options that are available to them in terms of working with me. The way that I structure my organization is by membership so that everyone who works with me be, becomes a member in one capacity or another, and I offer a variety of memberships which correspond to the budget somebody might have and how proactive they would want me to be on their behalf because I realized right from the beginning that not everyone wants the same thing and that if I were to charge by referral, 
rather than for my time, I would inherently become and be viewed as more of a dating service as opposed to a matchmaking business. And I really wanted people to invest in a process of working with me through matchmaking, not a dating service. And the primary difference in the model is that one charges for one's time as a matchmaker, whereas a service or an online service would charge usually by the number of referrals right. that they provide. So what happens is people do the division in their heads and they say, well, this person is costing me X number of dollars to meet them. They better be worth it. And in my opinion, that's not a very dignified way to meet somebody new or to go into a blind date with a price on their head. I think it's, it really is unfair and adds a different kind of pressure that's unnecessary. I would rather someone invest in a membership in my organization, and once they decide which level would meet their needs, I then get to work on their behalf. But the goal is always, no matter what level of membership they opt for, the goal is one good match to result from the process, whether they meet two people or 20 people. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and again, it's the opposite of today's, of the dating app world, where it's all about numbers and you're swiping left, swiping right, swiping left. And it, it really commoditizes people. It makes them all kind of interchangeable. And, you know, let's look at the, uh, you know, when you're doing it yourself, let's look at the, uh, at the uh, outward parameters and what the profiles say. And, you know, I think people make lots of uh, bad decisions and they, they have uh, it can be very challenging and very unfulfilling when when uh, it becomes a numbers game and and I think people get from my experience in terms of my coaching and people I've worked with they get very discouraged because it's people are kind of are cheapened on on, on both sides and all of a sudden you're approaching every interaction with a, a negative viewpoint and uh, then of course you're not going to make you're not going to make it very far when you approach things with uh, an expectation that it's not going to work out very well because of the past 50 experiences the past 50 coffee dates or whatever well, i completely agree yeah. and you know the the irony is and when i began the business 30 years ago there was no internet let's remember right. so over the years as my business has evolved and as the online services came on the scene and now the apps have come on the scene, it seems as if the more choices people have, the less likely they are to end up in one meaningful relationship. And there's, there's a real irony and a sadness to that. But I think it is, it, it really is true. Yeah, too many choices is, is, I think, the worst possible thing versus just having a few right choices. You know, you can decide between two or three people, but then you've got 50 or 100 or 200. People can't decide. It just gets confusing. Right. And when I, when, absolutely. And when I work with a client, I tell them right up front that they will only be meeting one person at a time because it would not make sense for me to make a referral because every time I make a referral, I believe in that match. There's a reason I'm making that referral. So why would I undermine my own good work by then introducing them to someone else who's going to confuse the situation? Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. You know, take a look at these three, four, five people and see which ones you like and try and decide and date them all at the same time. It's crazy to do well, it that way. Well, it doesn't work. It confuses no. people. It stresses people. 
And yes, and the at the end of the day, they can't focus on any one person sufficiently. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me a little bit more about the magic of the, you know, I, obviously you have this facility for connecting people. And I would think it's, you know, I, I've always been a con- connector in my life. I've always had an idea that this friend of mine should meet another friend or somebody else, you know, just for whatever reason. I've always th- done that, but it's always been kind of an intuitive process, not logical. What What's your process of moving through where you, where you, Obviously, you get to know the client very well, and then you decide this would be a good match with uh, with this person. How how does that all kind of happen? Well, it is a, a very interesting combination of my instincts and my analytical thinking, really at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because I get so so well acquainted with my clients. I begin to get a feel once they start meeting people for the kind of person they find attractive because chemistry is really the wild card. And I wish I could supply it. I'd be very rich today if every single match I made just clicked. So, but obviously that's not possible. And so when I make a referral in my own mind, I like to gauge the probabilities from on the one end of the spectrum, long shot. And on the other end of the spectrum there is I have a very strong feeling that this is going to work. And I must really confess that usually it's somewhere in the middle where there are reasons to make the referral. And yet there are issues that might not be compatible between people. But I always try and err on the side of recommending a meeting versus holding back. Because as I said, that chemistry piece is the wild card. So I can have two people who on paper are perfect for one another and they could meet and there's the chemistry is completely flat, not there. And, and at the same time, I have taken the risk of introducing people to one another who on paper were completely opposite. And yet my instincts were correct and they fell in love with each other and the chemistry was there with a vengeance. So I wish I could provide that, but my formula for a successful match, which I can control, is common values and I think, you know, common goals. So if somebody's looking for a serious committed relationship leading to marriage, for example, I'm going to make sure to find them somebody who has the same goal, who's not just out of a divorce and looking to date multiple people and just you know, experiment. How do you assess the people that truly aren't ready to move into a next next relationship because they haven't resolved the, the last relationship they were in? Well, it actually comes out in the wash, to be honest. It's not something I can really know up front because people are not always honest. And sometimes right. they're not even honest with themselves. It's not that they're looking to deceive me at all. I really sure. believe that some people just don't have that level of self-awareness and therefore fool themselves into thinking that they might be ready when they're really not. But it becomes apparent over time as they meet people and as they engage with people they meet because I hear feedback from both parties. So if I have a pattern with the client where no one is ever good enough or they're looking for problems with someone or it's clear to me that um, they got to a certain point in a relationship and they walk away 
really for reasons that they can't even articulate to me, which is something that just occurred this week with a client, uh, you know, then it becomes clearer to me that they have an issue and that that's not something I can necessarily help them with, though I do collaborate with many relationship therapists and coaches because, you know, I can sometimes people really benefit from a team approach. And I have had clients where I felt that they were stuck and brought in a therapist to work out some relationship issues with them or a coach where they just needed some social skills um, refinement or training and have been successful with them as a result of that. That makes so much sense to, to, and the only way you can do that, I understand what people need is by getting to know them and, and to, well, exactly. Really? Exactly. Because somebody's not going to come to me and say, you know, I, I, I'm narcissistic and greedy, and that's why I'm not in a relationship. No. <laughs> you know, I have to figure it out once they start meeting people and their behavior then speaks for itself. But to say that, hey, this, this is something that might help you before you move forward. That, and again, the coaching, I think, can be an invaluable piece for so many people to give them some support as they move along and more understanding, more perspective. But and looking at your website, you offer all those different pieces, relationship consultations and online coaching, and you even offer help with prenuptial agreements as well. Absolutely. I have had situations, and most of my clients have been married before. Uh, I do specialize in the 50-plus demographic, although I do have younger clients as well. But the ones who are 50 and older have... I would say about three quarters of them have been married previously and either been divorced or widowed. And so, you know, they come to the table with some experience, which I think really helps considerably because they've already either had a good marriage, which they sadly lost due to, you know, somebody passing away or via divorce, the marriage didn't work out and they've learned why maybe they had made a choice in the beginning that didn't work for them and they're much more resolved to get it right the next time. So they are you know, much more proactive in terms of the type of person whom they think is going to work for them the next time around. You know, it's an interesting dichotomy in terms of, and I've worked with uh, and had experience with people that were 50 plus women that had been in uh, very good marriages and, and were widowed they oftentimes had much more frustration, difficulty, even though they would be best suited to move into another relationship. They found it very frustrating in terms of the current, the current, the current dating world and, and women that had, didn't have good examples, you know, were marriages that didn't work out well and they were not treated well, uh, oftentimes had very low expectations of themselves. Uh, so they're willing to settle for, uh, uh, way less than they deserved, but it's interesting. Everybody's got everybody approaches it with a different experience that informs how they move forward. Absolutely. It's, it's, I myself am married to a widower. My husband Jim was widowed almost six years when he and I met, and we met through friends who introduced us. So, like the example that I have been setting professionally. I benefited from the help of my friends who played matchmaker to me. And he had come from 
a happy marriage and was determined not to get involved with anyone whom he didn't see a real pathway forward with. And so his bar was very high when, you know, I met him as well. And it it took us a long time to really, and it was, you know, time well spent, but it took us a long time to really uh, gradually more from being trusted confidants to romantic partners that didn't happen overnight. And it was really a function of time spent together and trust being established and growing over time. So what I try and tell all my clients as well is that a relationship is a continuum. You know, it starts with a first date and it evolves. And depending on the people involved and their timing and, you know, what's important to them, it's going to take different twists and turns, but the skills involved in negotiating relationship differences are universal. And that's part of what I try and help couples with is getting over those speed bumps so that they can move a relationship forward and not to be afraid of conflict also, because really the benchmark of a good relationship is its ability to handle conflict effectively. Because no two people who come together, especially later in life, are going to not have some differences. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be inherent in, yes. in, in moving forward. That's certainly what I've found as well. Uh, and the point you make about this takes time to develop a relationship. And again, I find that so many people, you know, me included, it's, it, it's so easy to be very impatient and expect things to move forward faster and to uh, you know to put the cart before the horse which you can't do and i find even more importantly for women that have this tendency to after the first date to be planning the wedding and when you don't have any idea what you've got right exactly exactly i have a client i'm working with now who you know she's so so um you know hell-bent on getting married that i think she sabotaged the last relationship that Uh, she was involved in as a result of my efforts by putting her partner under some very subtle psychological pressure, even though she never said it, but he felt it. And he eventually backed away just because his timeline was different. And um, unfortunately she, although didn't, you know, she unintentionally put out a vibe of kind of neediness, which you know, really is unappealing to most people. Yeah, it's, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You, you can, you cannot say things, but you really can't hide where you're coming from. And, exactly. And tell me if you agree with this, Leora, too, that, you know, in, in relationships, I, I, I teach women that you really have the power and to, to, to sell yourself short, to not understand the level of power that you have. That's not to take away from a man, but um it's it's a probably longer discussion but uh if you sh- if a woman shows up without being in her true power which is really awesome uh then she will she will chase people away or attract the wrong or attract the wrong men what, what's your feeling oh i completely agree and part of what my process entails is empowering women to find the voice that they may not have had in a prior relationship or marriage Um, But to find it and to really honor it so that, you know, they feel healthy in the situation and they feel heard. And that that is so important. 
And then, and only then, can one start to negotiate all the intricacies of coming together in later life, you know, financially, professionally, uh, you know, involving children. There are so many issues that come to bear, and that's why I developed an expertise in prenups, because as an attorney, I wanted to be in a position to help people negotiate those, those issues which, as I say, can only really be addressed once there is that foundation of trust. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in closing, this time has kind of flown by, Leora, and your story is, is fascinating. And oh, thank you. I, I could speak for hours about this. Well, maybe we'll have you on again for, for, for part two, because what I haven't gotten to, I'd like to, <laughs> I'm sure you have some great stories. Of, oh, my God, yes. Of, of matches. Maybe tell us, uh, uh, maybe one story that you're most proud of in terms of, uh, in terms of your business. Anything come to mind? Well, um, I guess it would be my very first match because um, as of yesterday, in fact, it was the 30th anniversary of their first date and they have been married 29 years and raised two children together. And this was a couple who really, I went out on a limb to introduce because I had met him at a singles fair and recruited him. And he was overcoming a former drug addiction and um, a situation professionally where he was really starting uh, from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And I introduced him to a woman who was a single mom of an infant whose ex-husband had left her when she was eight months pregnant for another woman. And so she'd been through her own trauma. And I knew that he would not be open to meeting a single mom because he was really financially at his lowest point in life. And although he did want a family, he was not in a position to you know, take that on anytime soon. And so I finessed it so, such that I asked him for a favor because she was new to Washington and didn't know anyone. And I said, look, um, if you could just introduce her around to some people, meet her, and maybe invite her to some social events here and there, it would really make such a meaningful difference in her life. And these two fell in love in about 20 minutes on their very first date and ended up sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial kissing till 1 a.m. Wow. So it was a home run. And, you know, there aren't too many home runs that happen in my practice, but they were a perfect example and, quite frankly, an experience that I took as a sign from the universe that I had a gift and that I should go with it and I should continue down this road, which has taken me 30 years down the road now. Well, your story is awesome. In, con in conclusion, any advice you would give for people, not necessarily people looking for it, uh, uh, the relationship of their lives, but to the people that uh, want to know how to have a, a healthy and fulfilling life as you've put together for yourself, what would you tell people? Well, um, as a book that I'm writing, um, basically in parts, uh, be open, be flexible, be willing to take chances, which, you know, brings me back to my childhood legacy we talked about is really take a risk. Because the worst that can happen in my practice is you make a nice friend. You know, I deal with very sophisticated, interesting people. 
So what's the worst that you, you know, you spend a little time getting to know someone and it's not the love of your life, but you learn something about everyone. And so, you know, that's one thing, keep an open mind. The other thing is don't project. As you said, Dan, don't meet somebody for a first date and say, well, he or she could not be the father, future father or mother of my children because X or Y. Because what the life they're living today is not the life they would be living if they were married and having a family. So people tend to project and extrapolate their own needs onto someone else and presume that they would or would not be you know, really capable of stepping into that role. And so my point is take it one step at a time. Be open, be curious about people. You know, it's not about what I can bring to the table necessarily, but you know, what have you got to tell me that's interesting? You know, let me, let me learn from you. Even the worst dates can be learning experiences and opportunities. I couldn't agree with you more that if you approach it from uh, making a friend without this expectation has to be anything other than what I can I learn about the person and maybe I'll make a friend. That's a healthy way to go into it instead of this, it's got to be the be all and the end all because that's not the way life rolls, is it? No, it isn't. Uh, so where can, where can people that would like to talk to you and work with you, where can they find you? They can come to my website, leorahoffman.com. That's L-E-O-R-A-H-O-F-F-M-A-N.com. And they can email me or call me. My number is on the website. And as I said, I really have a bias of having conversation rather than email. So, you know, it's, it's wonderful to talk to people and it's necessary and enlightening to really engage in a personal conversation and in a journey getting to know someone as I have been fortunate enough to do. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. I know there's more of the story we haven't gotten to today, but uh, it's a great story. And I just love the way you're able to help people that in today's world, uh, you know, more than ever need some help, uh, not from a computer, but from another person that can uh, help guide them and, and make connections that, uh, and, and steer them in a direction that's going to give them what they're looking for. So thank you for doing that. It's just uh, uh, great to see what you're doing and uh, our hats off to you. Laura. You're very welcome, Dan. And thank you for the opportunity to discuss my work. It's always really fun and enjoyable for me to really um, give back the things that I learn every day in this work. Thank you, Laura. It's our pleasure. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks for listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life. If you like today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. All of that would be greatly appreciated. You can find me at dansimon.co on Instagram, dansimontv, or Twitter, at Dan Simon TV. Thanks for listening to the show today. New show will be out on Monday. Have a great week.